Well, I want to do something a little different tonight, and I want to give you the main takeaways from our text in advance, so that they're in the forefront of your minds as we walk through the story this evening. I'm going to make a few points of application as we go through the story, Um, but there are two main takeaways that I want you to remember or to consider and remember um, from the Um, They are basically the major themes that we have been seeing throughout our study of Genesis. And the first is this, God will keep His promises. And secondly, He will keep His promises through one man whom He has chosen. And of course, we know that that one man is the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see this play out. As we see Jacob and his family go down to Egypt, our outline has four points to it this evening. We're going to see first, and I'm about to change his name, and you'll understand why in a minute, but we're going to look at Israel's assurance from God, Israel's arrival in Egypt, his audience before Pharaoh, and his anticipation of the promise fulfilled. You'll find that outline in its normal place, children. You'll find your words in the normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we continue. Father, I ask that you would, as always, prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Grant me grace, fill me with your spirit, that I might do something good for you and your people this evening. Attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to, and I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of His church. Amen. Well, let's look first at Israel's assurance from God. And as I just mentioned, um, we are using His name, and it it goes back and forth throughout the passage, but Moses ends chapter 45 like he does chapter 46 by calling Him Israel. And in doing so, uh, he's communicating that moving forward, um, this wasn't going to be personal. It was actually going to be more corporate in nature. This wasn't about Jacob individually. It was going to be about the family and, more importantly, the the nation that was going to arise out of the family. That being said, despite the fact that Pharaoh had told Israel back in chapter 45 that he didn't need to bring anything with him because his needs were all going to be supplied, We read in verse 1 that Israel did take um, all that he had on his journey. And on the way, he stopped in, some pronounce it Beersheba, others pronounce it Beersheba. And like his um, grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac before him, uh, he stops there to offer sacrifices. He stops there to worship. And though we're not told, we're not exactly told why, or we're really not told why at all, I think, it's, I think we can make a reasonable inference in regard to why. And I want to say from the outset that I don't think that it had as much to do with the fear of Pharaoh as it did the fear of the Lord. But we need to keep in mind a few things. First, we need to keep in mind that he was leaving the land that God had promised his grandfather and his father and him. Not only was he leaving the land that he had been promised, he was moving into or going to Egypt, the land 
that his grandfather had gone into without direction and gone in on his own accord, and the land that his father had been um, kept out of, God had told him not to go. We also need to keep in mind that Israel more than likely knew the prophecy that had been made to his grandfather, and he had an idea that this possibly could be the trip that was going to lead them into sojourning into a land that wasn't theirs, that was going to be filled with affliction, and it was going to last for 400 years. So I think it's reasonable for us to infer that Israel went to Beersheba, Beersheba, to worship because he wanted to hear from the Lord. He wanted a command to go. He wanted to know that it was okay. It was very possible that he was more willing to um, upset Pharaoh and not see Joseph than to upset the Lord and to do something contrary to his will. So knowing that the Lord had appeared to his father at Beersheba, he wanted the Lord to appear to him as well. He wanted to worship. He wanted to pray. He wanted to hear a word from the Lord, to receive a word from the Lord, to not only assure him to go, that assured him to go, but also assured him of the promises that had been made. And brothers and sisters, this is just good practical wisdom for us. When facing decisions, that we don't come to the Lord in prayer and, and sit and wait for a vision or to hear His audible voice, we come to Him with an attitude of prayer with our Bibles open. And we don't come to Him with our Bibles open having opened them with our eyes closed and putting our finger down and looking for our answer. We come with our Bibles open asking for wisdom. We come to His Word desiring an ability to discern our own motives we want to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is moral, what is immoral, what is God-honoring and God-glorifying versus what is self-satisfying. See, because when we come to His Word, we're not, we're not looking for specific answers to yes and no questions in regards to if and where we should move or who we should marry or which path we should take. As I've told many, many students over the years, Wendy's name was not in Scripture. But we come with the Bible open. Because in the words of Richard Phillips, it's, it's the habitual training of daily discipline in God's Word that grants us what we need. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that God did, in fact, speak to him. And we shouldn't be surprised at what he said either. In verses 3 and 4, God graciously, once again, God graciously assures Israel that he had nothing to fear, and he gives him four reasons why. First, he says he's, he said he's going to Egypt, and in going to Egypt, he is not going to thwart the will of God. He's not going to thwart the promises of God. In fact, God tells him that he is going to make a great nation of him. 
there in Egypt, not in Canaan. Secondly, he says that he would go with Israel into Egypt. He was not only going to go with him, but he was going to be, he was going to be present with him. He was going to protect him. And third, he, was, he said he was also going to bring him out again. Bring, he was going to bring Israel out again. And it's important, again, for the language, he's going to bring Israel out again. Or he's going to bring him out of Egypt. Now, we'll, we'll learn in chapter 47 that he only lives 17 years in Egypt. And he is brought out, but he's brought out by Joseph. And he's taken and buried in the land, or in the, cave, the family cave at Machpelah. But God was promising more than bringing him out. God is promising, was promising to bring more than an individual out. He was promising to bring the nation out. And again, in fulfillment of the prophecy that, he, that Abraham had received back in Genesis 17. And then finally, he told Israel that his son, his son would close his eyes when he died. He compassionately assured him that he was going to die peacefully in the presence of his son that he thought he'd never see again. Beloved, Moses wrote this. We need to remember Moses wrote this to provide assurance to the nation of Israel while in the wilderness after having experienced the exodus through which the Lord was fulfilling His Word physically in real time. But for us, we, we need and have the same assurance spiritually today. In the midst of questions, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of affliction, we need to be assured that our mighty God and Father is with us and for us. We need to be assured and know that He is faithful and His promises are sure. We need to, to know and to be assured that His will cannot be thwarted. As many questions as we might have and as, as tough as those questions might be sometimes, His will cannot be thwarted. We need to know that our God is like no other. Our God is great and mighty, and there's nothing that He cannot do. And that brings us to our second point. Israel's arrival in Egypt. Having heard the Lord and having been reassured by His Word, verse 5 says that Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. Verse 7 says, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And down in verse 26, he said, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born in, in, to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, I didn't read all the names between 18, or verse 8 and verse 25 for the sake of time and expediency, and John did a great job. I don't know if you heard him sigh right before he began. But there is something I need to share about the list. There's one thing in particular I want to share about the list there are questions surrounding the math, and we're not going to solve them tonight. Um, you can 
Try to do that yourself in the days to come. But there are questions. Why exactly, uh, why, why uh, count those who were counted? Um, why um, were some listed and some not? Why were only six women listed? How many were actually there? Why the gymnastics to get to 70? Who was the 70th person? And again, we're not going to answer those questions here tonight. Not, I mean, some say the number's uh, typological. Some say it's literal. What's sure, what sure is that the number, which um, describes completeness and fullness and expansion, in the words of one commentator, that number expresses the notion that all Israel entered Egypt when Jacob's family went there. Another commentator said that the, the number communicates God was advancing His promise to Abraham for His offspring to number like the stars above. The bottom line is, or in other words, Moses is making the point that they all went in and there weren't many of them, particularly in light of how many are going to leave. Listen to Exodus 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Does that sound familiar? And they grew and multiplied so much that the new Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph would say the people of Israel were too many and too mighty. Well, you can imagine how the anticipation would have grown as Israel and his family moved closer and closer to Egypt. And whether or not Israel, whether or not he had realized at some point that his sons had something to do with the disappearance of Joseph, what he did, or what he chose to do, was fitting and somewhat ironic. In verse 28, it says that he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. Joseph had earned the right to lead, right? He had put himself in the place of Benjamin, proven himself to be a leader, but there was more than that. There was more than what he was doing as a leader. He was rectifying or he was giving the opportunity, given the opportunity to rectify a past decision, right? It was his plan to sell Joseph into slavery. So who better than Judah to lead the family and his father back into the presence of Joseph? And so with him leading the way, they enter Goshen. And as they're approaching and entering Egypt, Joseph's getting ready himself. He's preparing. He's jumping into the chariot that Pharaoh had given him as a sign of authority. And he goes out to meet him, and Moses says that, Moses said that he presented himself to Israel. The verb is also translated presented in the King James Version, but it's, but it's translated appeared before in the NIV and the New American Standard. It's also translated appeared to or unto in all four translations uh, in chapter 12, verse 7, 17, 1, and 18, 1. And in those three cases, it's translated appeared to. When God appeared to Abram, or to Abraham. And that's significant because I think it's Moses letting us know 
that there Jacob was experiencing a great deal. When, when they would come together, he would be experiencing a great deal of awe for the glory of Joseph on top of the deluge of emotions that he would have been experiencing when they came face to face. Right? Those emotions would have washed over him like a tsunami. Which is why we read that he fell on Joseph's neck and he wept on his neck for a very long time. Now I want to come back to, in just a minute, what Israel said to Joseph after that um, impassioned greeting. What, right now I want us to concentrate on what Joseph said to Israel. Look at, look at verse 31. He said, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, until, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. It sounds strange to us. This isn't the first time this kind of language has, uh, has sounded strange. But what we see going on here is a very well thought out plan. It's a well thought out plan that would have long term ramifications and it would exhibit Joseph's forward thinking in regard to the promises as well as the well being of his family. For one thing, by settling in Goshen, the family and ultimately the nation would remain close to Canaan, which would be important since their stay was only temporary and they were going to be led back. Also, while there, they would have had space and the resources that they had needed to grow and to expand into that nation that God was growing them into. It would also keep them at arm's length from the Egyptians. It was going to ensure that they would not be assimilated or easily influenced by the pagan culture, which had been, um, they had been finding difficult to resist in Canaan. And they would remain distinct as that sojourning people. And it would also communicate that they had no desire whatsoever to create problems for Pharaoh. They had, they had no desire to subvert his authority. Their desire was to dwell in peace. And there are two quick questions I think we need to ask when we consider Joseph's plan. First is, how forward-thinking are we when it comes to who we are as believers? Are we okay with being an abomination in the eyes of the world? Are we okay with being foolish and strange in the eyes of the culture in which we live? Or are we too concerned with being pleasing to and accepted by the world? Do we desire to remain distinct and set apart 
and see ourselves as sojourners and exiles? Or are we okay being assimilated to the point of losing our identities in Christ? Do we live in such a way that we believe that this world is all there is? Or do we live in such a way where we believe that there is more and that what's coming is even better? The second question, how forward-thinking are we in regards to our children? Are we thinking, are we thinking through how we can prepare them for eternity? Are we more concerned about their earthly and temporal success or their heavenly and eternal destiny? Are we concentrating more on uh, more time, um, spending more time and concentrating our time uh, preparing them to serve the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? Are we more concerned about them fitting into the world or remaining distinct from it. And that brings us to the third point. Israel's audience before Pharaoh. And actually first we see Joseph and his brothers before Pharaoh in verse 1. Joseph and a few of them go to Pharaoh and everything goes according to plan. Everything that Joseph asked them to do and say, they do and say. And, and Pharaoh not only grants them Goshen, but he puts them in charge of his flock. I mean, things have worked out so well for him, putting things under Joseph's charge. Let's try his brothers too. And we, and we wonder, why, why did they receive that favor? And two reasons. One, the Lord was with them. That's the obvious reason. And then the one that's also as obvious, Ju, Ju, uh, excuse me, Joseph was their mediator. Joseph was their mediator. He had prepared his brothers on how to act and what to say when they approached and how to approach Pharaoh. He spoke to Pharaoh on their behalf. The favor that he was showing to them was in Joseph's name. Everything that they received was in his name. God was keeping his promises, and he was keeping them through the one man he had chosen. Secondly, we see Joseph and his father before Pharaoh. Verse 7 says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood, stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of, years of, your, or the, days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And They've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Jacob is at the point of being very weak and feeble. He's well-worn. Um, the language we read of, if you remember, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're well stricken in years. And the suffering and the sins of his life have taken their toll. But what happens is not what we would expect. When he enters into Pharaoh's presence, he doesn't bow. 
he stands up, or he stands up the best he can. Actually, Joseph stood him up. And we would expect with the present, you know, in, in the presence of Pharaoh that he would ask maybe for something else, something beyond what he had get, been given, but he, but he doesn't ask for anything. He blesses Pharaoh. He blesses him twice. And we learned from our study earlier in Genesis when we, we saw Abraham encounter Melchizedek, that the blessing is always given by the superior to an inferior. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? What, how is it that J- Jacob or Israel is giving the blessing to Pharaoh? And what it meant, what it meant was, was that physically, Pharaoh was greater than Jacob. But spiritually, Jacob was greater than Pharaoh. What Pharaoh had to offer Jacob paled in comparison to what Jacob had to offer Pharaoh. Jacob was being a blessing to the nations. The promise was being fulfilled. He was seeking the welfare of Pharaoh in Egypt. And after the encounter, Moses said, Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Two things quickly. God continues to keep His promises through the one man He has chosen. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom Joseph points. In Paul's words, he's the one mediator between God and man. The author of Hebrews says that he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands in our place. He is interceding on our behalf at the throne of grace. Our salvation is found in Him alone. All of the spiritual blessings that are ours are ours in Christ. Not one is left out. They've been given to us in His name because we're united to Him. We're not only forgiven, we've been completely justified because both His active and passive work have been applied to us and on our, have been given to us, and it's in Him that we have all that we need. Secondly, weak and feeble though we are, We're all well-worn by cares and concerns and our suffering and sins of our lives. But we all remain believers, children of God. And we may be viewed as inferior in the eyes of the world. We may be considered inferior according to worldly standards. But we are in a far greater position than even we realize because of who we are in Christ. In Him we have full access to the throne of grace. And we have something to offer the world that is far greater than anything the world has to offer us. Listen to these words of James Boyce. 
What do we have to offer? We have the treasure of the gospel. We have the knowledge of the true God. We are the fragrance of life to those who respond to our testimony. No greater wealth exists. There is no greater good to be done for anyone than to offer him or her the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ in whom alone sinners can escape the wrath of God to come. Now let's go back to verse 30. Israel's anticipation of the promises fulfilled. When Joseph appeared to Jacob or to Israel in Goshen, Moses said that Israel's response was this, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. We have to remember that Israel had plunged into the, the depths of despair and hopelessness when Joseph died or when Joseph disappeared. And at the end of chapter 45, we see his hope revived when he hears that Joseph's alive. And now, in, in our chapter tonight, he sees him with his own eyes, and his faith is invigorated. He was no longer wanting to die. He was ready to die. And there's a difference. He was ready to die because he was full of hope. And he was resting in the promises that had been made to him, his father, and his grandfather. And it seems only right that we come to this passage as we enter into the Christmas season because Jacob's words should remind us of Simeon's that we're going to sing in just a minute. You may remember from our study of Luke 2 that Simeon had been told he wasn't going to die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And Luke said, he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel." Beloved, it's as we look into not only the face of the incarnate Christ, but the resurrected Christ in faith, through His Word, by the Spirit, that we are convinced that the promises are true, that they're for us, and that we're able to rest in them. In Him, we have experienced our own exodus. We've been set free from our bondage of sin. And we're now wandering in our own wilderness as sojourners and exiles and aliens. We know that this is not our home. But as we look to Jesus, we're able to run the race that's set before us. As we, as we look in His wonderful face,
the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We do not have to fear life or death because we're told we know that one day we will see His face and His name will be on our foreheads and night will be no more. We will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be our light and we will reign forever and ever. Beloved, God will keep His promises. And He will keep them through one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, whom He has chosen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love? Would You lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? For your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.